time to hate watch with us. Hi, Kelsey. Hi. We still don't know what to do here, obviously. We literally just spent five minutes talking about it, and here we are still. <laughs> um, so, what do we got today? Today, we are talking about my favorite show on television, Catastrophe. And then we're going to talk about characters in general in a fun <laughs> just, just all characters. Just every, every kind of character. I'm going to let you frame up how we're going to talk about it since you had better ideas than I did. We're going to talk about what characters are. We're going to talk about how you know what a character is. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about what characters do. <laughs> Welcome to characters. All right. So first question, um, is Catastrophe really your uh, your favorite show? I think it might be. Really? Um, like currently airing. I think it may be. And it may be in like a top five all time. Do you want me to explain why now? Or do you want to talk about yeah, your go newborn for baby feelings? Okay. Yeah, we will have plenty of time for all of my newborn baby feelings. All right. That sounded wrong when I said it. <laughs> But I knew in my heart it was right. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> no, I think the reason why it's my favorite show is because I love romantic comedy so much, and it's, like, my actual perfect romantic comedy type because it's so salty and a little jaded, as well as being really sweet in weird ways. And I heard about it, like, through probably through podcasts, I don't know, a year and a half ago, maybe, and I didn't really know anything about it until then, but the second I heard the first mention of it and what it was, I immediately had to watch it. And it's because of the format. It's six episodes, half hour long per season. It's so easy to digest in just like one sitting. So it's like a long, I don't want to say movie because I don't, I know that's wrong. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but it's like conventional wisdom. Right. But it's like a long, it's like a perfect little, it's three hours. It's great. Can you give uh, an overview of premise? Uh, So it's about two very regular, normal, average people, Sharon and Rob, right? Yep. So Sharon, Horgan, and Rob Delaney are the the creators of the show as well, which I think is a nice little thing that you don't see all that often. But um, it's about these two people. She's Irish. Mm -hmm. Got that one. Um, And he is from Boston and he's working in London on like a business trip and meets her randomly. They have like a week long one night stand. A quite aggressive one as it were. He leaves and they're like, cool, we're never going to see each other again. She finds out she's pregnant. And then they kind of just decide to make it work because she's like, I'm old and she doesn't think she has any other shot, but she also kind of likes him and he kind of likes her and they just like kind of say what the hell and go for it. So it's the first season is just about them like figuring out what they're doing and whether they actually like each other or not uh, and whether or not they can bring a child into the world and how they're going to do it because they've decided to do it. Along with some other like catastrophes, as it were, and misadventures that come up for her very bodily and physically over the course of the season. Right. It's very British. It's very, like, I don't even want to say it's HBO-ish. It's just, like, the British level of acceptable things you can do on television. Dude, Europe is buck wild. Yeah, they don't give any fucks. They give no fucks. I'm just Googling some shit. It's a, it's a public television broadcaster, so it's like your ABC or NBC. 
Amazon's picked it up here, so you can find it on Prime, seasons one and two, and we're talking about this right now because season three comes out. I should know this. Soon. Comes out soon. <laughs> comes out real, real soon, y'all. It's in my Google Calendar, so I'll look it up. It's in my Google Calendar. Talks in the meantime. Um, I think I've mentioned before in previous episodes that I am an inherent skeptic. Um, and so I, too, had heard about it or had read writing about it. Is that what you read, writing? You, I read the writing. I read <laughs> some words. I read a compilation of words that were put into one format. So for, fancy. For my reading pleasure. Yeah, so it, it was a thing that was in my sphere of influence. I am notably a skeptic of new media, um, not new media as in capital N, capital M, but as in like texts that I have not previously been exposed to. Um, Kelsey made me watch it and warned me ahead of time that it was equal parts aggressive. And I don't think you used salty at the time, but it was made clear to me that the portrayal of the characters was perhaps not in the same vein as that of the characters in Parks and Rec. Shall we juxtapose those? Sure. Um, so um, I watched two episodes. I had a lot of shock to the system with the pilot um, and then sort of eased in with episode two. And then this evening, I, in preparation for the recording, I watched episodes three and four. So I haven't quite completed the first season, um, but... I am far enough into it that I think I've got a pretty good grasp on what the showrunners are going for. Interesting to me that you point out that what captured your imagination and made you want to watch it is that it's a rom-com, um, which i that's a notable difference between you and I in a space in which there are not many notable differences <laughs> uh, between the two of us, because I think I've mentioned here as well that I do not like rom-coms in general and carry a lot of skepticism about rom-coms. And they are my bread and butter. And as much as this is a rom-com, like, you can't deny that. Like, it is a true, like, true, true, true romantic comedy. It is not, like, a Kate Hudson romantic comedy. It feels a little realer? Yeah, maybe? well, it's a romantic comedy in the sense that it is a story centered around romance that is being told comedically. It's not a romantic <laughs> comedy in the sense that it follows, like, uh, like a... I can't think of a single romantic comedy. It doesn't follow, like, the Kate Hudson format of romantic comedy movies. But it almost does. It has a lot of those same, like, tropes, right? Like, they have a meet-cute of, like, their six-day weird tryst, and then there's, like, conflict, and they kind of dabble in that, like, will-they-won't-they they space for a long time. And there's a... I don't want to say, like, a happy ending, but, like, a mm-hmm. satisfactory ending... Well, but let me counter. In the type of rom-com that I I realized I just described rom-com as, like, a narrative. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't particularly detailed. (laughs) Uh, So. (laughs) Sorry. In in, in the rom-com that I am skeptical of, there is hot single career woman and like hot single straight white mediocre man and they awkwardly bumble into each other and the will they won't they happens before they have sex 
oftentimes. And, okay, let me take a step back. I think the reason that I don't think of Catastrophe as being the best example of a rom-com is because they take the rom-com tropes and they just, like, twist it the fuck up and turn it into, like, antimatter, basically. It's rom-com antimatter. So, you know, the the trope of, like, guy and girl meet is, like, they're extremely aggressive and graphic six-night, one-night stand. And then, like, the idea that there's some sort of conflict that's creating their will-they-won't-they, you know, for them is her getting pregnant and then having all of her maladies and him being an American in England trying to start up a business. And, you know, I think in typical rom-coms, the woman is usually in a position to be desperately seeking the man, even in situations where rom-coms are trying to do, like, the feminist, I can make it on my own type single woman there's usually some amount of desperation. So it's either like someone in her life pushing her to get married or someone telling her that like, you're still a legitimate woman, even if you fall in love with a man, you know, like that kind of thing. And in this case, Sharon does express some feelings of desperation, but it's like, it's more real and also more twisted in the sense that it's coming from her being in a stage of life crisis where she's like, you know, this might be my only shot to have a child. And like, I kind of like you, so maybe I'll give this relationship a a shot because I feel like I'm old enough now that, like, if I'm going to do it, now's the time. So to your point, it is more real. But I think it's taking those tropes and boiling them down to something that seems like it's darker and saltier and more bitter. I think your description was really fair in the sense that there are parts of it that are really shockingly sweet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, I don't want to say it's like your your everyman's rom-com, but I feel like it it's takes It's definitely like, not your everyman's rom-com. Kate Hudson is your everyman's no. rom-com. I mean, like, they are the everyman. They're not in, like, their behavior, maybe, but, like, they're very normal people, and, like, it's not like a fairy tale, like, love is this, like, act of fate that just happens and whatever, like, yeah. it, you can read it that way, but it's also, like... It's something that you have to work for, and it can be something that comes over time. And I think it's like a, I don't want to say it's like a realistic story, but it's at least um, taking some of those notes of a rom-com and bringing them down to, like, earth. Yeah. Well, and I think, like, you know, they play with that idea of fate, and I think it's, like, the idea that fate isn't always beautiful. You know, Mm -hmm. like, it's so much of it is, like, the same tropes, but, like what if this wasn't great on the surface and yet it's also still great. So tell me, you've watched four episodes and you texted me and said, I'm having feelings. <laughs> I think I described it as human feelings. To human be, feelings. To tell be me about exact. your human feelings. I think I've talked on the show before and certainly you know this about me, Kelsey, about the fact that like I don't always have a true emotional connection to a text and so like I tend to be pretty disconnected from any media that I'm consuming um even in cases where I find characters and stories to be really compelling like I'm not connecting the same way that I am connecting to things in real life and that's somewhat noteworthy because as you also know Kelsey I am like a deeply emotional person yes I cry constantly over everything. I got (laughs) married this year and Kelsey almost killed me because I basically just cried for like six months straight on either side of the wedding. So for sure. (laughs) So it doesn't come from me like being dead inside. I just apparently dead inside when it comes to 
media texts. I don't know. So I was watching the show tonight, noticing that as I was watching it, like, I could feel my face doing things. Like, I could feel myself, like, cringing. I caught myself having these, like, small little, like, schoolgirl grins in certain scenes where, like, Sharon and Rob are flirting. There's a scene where one of the side characters, like, abruptly kisses Rob, and it's, like, a painfully, brutally awkward moment. And I, like, literally pushed my entire body against the couch with my hands, like, as if I was pushing her away from me, like, as if she was kissing me. And, like, I was so tense that I stayed that way up until Rob, like, pushes her off and gets up to run away. And then he's, like, running away across this park and he slips in the mud and I, like, literally, like, sat back in the couch like I had just slipped in the mud. (laughs) And then there were all these moments where, like, little things would make me, like, chuckle to myself. And, like, that is not a way of being for me when I watch stuff. No, (laughs) you're not, like, physically engaged, for sure. Never. Like, my husband calls me on it all the time because he's, like, a raucous lapper. Like, he doesn't just laugh at stuff. He, like, kicks the floor and, like, flails his body around and, like, makes it very obvious when he thinks things are funny. And I'll watch the same thing and also think it's funny and I'll kind of be like, Heh. you know, like, I, I have very underwhelming reactions. And so I I don't know for this show, like, what it is that it, Like, it's almost like an out-of-body experience that it engages me so deeply that I am able to have, like, physical and emotional relationships to the content. And so, like, I don't know if it's to your point that, like, these people just feel painfully real or that, like, the situation feels real or what. But something about it is so engaging that it, like literally pulled my body into the text so that I was reacting like in virtual reality. I love that so much. (laughs) So like, are you at this point interested in watching more or are you going to put it down again and be like, I saw it, I watched it for the podcast and I'm good? I mean, I'll finish it. Um, I think for me, I've talked also about the fact that like sometimes things are slow watches for me, if especially if it like requires any amount of energy from me and like I've heard other people say this and so I don't feel out of line or like ridiculous saying it but I think there's some extent to which like if you are letting down your walls enough to engage with the text on that level it's making you vulnerable right like if you are exposing yourself to a text enough that you're relating to it deeply and, like, really creating meaning from that text, then, like, that does require some amount of energy, the same way that, like, being vulnerable with a person requires energy. Right. Like, when I watch season three, when it comes out on April 28th, note that I found it. Um, <laughs> like, it's not something I'm going to watch while I'm, like, screwing around eating dinner and playing on my phone. It's going to be, like, I don't want anyone near me. And I just want to, like, sit with my glass of wine and watch the entire thing. Right. Right. It's a much more similar experience for me to, like, reading a really good book, like, the way a lot of our peers talk about reading Harry Potter, um, where it, like, absorbs you into a point where you sort of lose track of, like, time and space around you. And that, I mean, that for me is, like, a really big energy dump. And so I fully intend to finish it. I think I need to be in the right headspace. 
Yeah. There's like almost an escapist element to it uh, because it's like sneaky and gets in there and like captures the imagination without me necessarily giving consent for it to do so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think like my favorite time to rewatch this, partly because of its length and partly because of my feels for it, is when I'm like flying anywhere because it's like three hours for each season. So if you're going anywhere in the U.S. from the East Coast, you can pretty much watch each season on one of your flights. And it's perfect for that. It's a great escapist television. And the second I hear that theme music, which is also like the outro music, I just get so happy. So here's something that I was thinking about as I was trying to puzzle through, like, why this show does what it does for me. And you started to allude to it. So I'm like circling back. A lot of traditional rom-coms are very aspirational. They are creating a fairy tale story with like fairy tale humans who are unreasonably beautiful and live these ridiculous lives that you know like materially and financially are not possible in real life. And they find each other through situations that you know would never happen. But you get into it because fairy tales are engrossing and like it's nothing like real life and that is great. Right. This show, I think, is equally as extreme as that aspirational story but whatever the opposite of aspirational is because i think like like rob and sharon are bitter angry people with really snarky humor and um they're like really rude and coarse with each other in a way that in the show is really endearing but in real life like probably no one would put up with and so i'm wondering if there's some amount of it that works for the same reason that, like, the aspirational rom-com works, just on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, I think you're onto something in a lot of ways because, I mean, you're not wrong with your depiction of them, but I think there's also that piece of it that's, like, they're not necessarily nice or good people, but they still have, like, have somehow come to each other in the world and, like, have something between each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's still... Well, because even even in an aspirational text, they try to create some kind of neutral ground, right? So that you see yourself in it, but they make it aspirational because the whole point of an aspirational text is that even though you see yourself in it, you also see something to reach for. Right. I don't, I'm having like a vocabulary fail, so I don't know what like the opposite of aspirational would be in terms of words, but like, I'm thinking about it directionally, like if aspirational things are reaching up and like we put those on a pedestal and so it's a type of love that's like a far and above what we see in real life i feel like i see this this text like reaching down like they're putting these people like a level below decent humans right like they are below basic human decency in terms of how they interact Except sometimes, sometimes, except that we also see ourselves in it. Like we see ourselves as when we're crude and when we're rude and when we're salty and selfish. But then there's also like this incredible sweetness and warmth and like very real human connection. So I don't know, like it feels like it's the same formula, just with a different form of humanity yeah and i think there's been other examples of that too like you're the worst for example is a nice little u.s counterpart to this in some ways but is it it has some of those same elements of like sweetness and like 
atrocities in human behavior. <laughs> but I find catastrophe to be a little bit more, like, accessible mm-hmm. in how they behave, I guess. Like, you're the worst for me is, like, it's, like, L.A., like, there's a ton of, like, they're always high or whatever, and they're just, like, going to weird clubs and doing L.A. things, and I can't deal with that. But if you're giving me a Bostonian <laughs> who's, like, a little rough around the edges, who's living in the U.K., like, kind of begrudgingly, that's... <laughs> very accessible for me. So maybe that's part of it too. I have to say just as a side note, um, that one of the things I really appreciate about Rob is I, I feel like he is my cultural liaison to the Britishness of this show. So like this show is really fucking British. It is full of British humor. Like her brother in particular is like the epitome of British humor. And every time Rob tries to interact with her brother, he fucks up because he does not understand. And there's like little moments all the time where Rob is trying to interface with Britishness and like can't. And I feel like he is all of us in that moment. Oh, yeah. And also, can we just talk about the depiction of in-laws on both sides (laughs) of their relationship in this show? Because it is flawless. I'm not going to ask you to give your own opinions about your marriage so far. And I'm not married, so I don't have opinions. But (laughs) I have seen people experience in-laws. And I've seen the show. And... (laughs) And I think, like, at a minimum, we can all talk about, like, the cultural expectation of what it's like to have in-laws. And I think, like, even if you aren't married and don't have an opinion on it or whatever, I think there is something relatable about trying to imagine what it's like to take two sets of families and their oddities and smush them together and expect them to find common ground. Right. And... In season two in particular, which I know, Kirsty, you haven't gotten to yet, the, I want to say almost the full season, if not the full season, um, Rob Delaney's mom, who's was Carrie Fisher, um, comes to stay with them because they have an, a second newborn, believe it or not. And that dynamic between Sharon and the mom is so funny. And then, like, They bring everyone together, like, all her in-laws to the house, and it's just this, like, disaster of a party that I understand, having been to many family parties I didn't want to be at, like, (laughs) and it's so, like, terribly relatable, like, you almost are like, oh, they're saying all the things that I would like to say, but can't say. Yeah, it's like, like, there's almost an aspect of it in that sense where it's appealing to, like all of the most base parts of human decency, as opposed to, like, the rose-colored parts of human decency. It's like allowing you to reach for everything you ever wish you could say or do, but it's not pretty. One thing that I do find really compelling about this story is, like, as a newlywed myself, there are things about being married that I didn't necessarily see coming um, in terms of, like, navigating relationship things. And, like, I've been with my husband for a very, very, very long time. And so, like, it seemed like nothing, right? Um, But it's different once you get married. And so what's interesting to me about Catastrophe is that they don't know each other before they get married. And now I'm sitting here thinking about all all of the things that they're going to have to navigate as humans who are going to get married and raise a child together. 
And it's really interesting to watch how they position those two as partners and like partners and having to navigate the mundane because they do spend some amount of time navigating the mundane. It's not only like all of the big things that come up over the course of her pregnancy. Oh, no, it's very mundane at times. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like that's a story that's told. I know a lot of people who have gotten married and have talked about feeling surprised by their first year of marriage and by the fact that that is something that's different. And I don't think as a society we do a good job of talking about what it means to be partners, especially legal partners, and what you're really taking on there. And, like, Catastrophe doesn't go too deep into that, but they go deep enough that it's it's interesting sort of watching that in parallel to my own life playing out and thinking about what it would be like for these two humans, like, to actually exist on this earth and be going through that growing, those growing pains together. Yeah, and I think as you get into season two, you see, like, that they have made it work, but it's obviously still, like, an ongoing not challenge, but, like, it, it's, like, life, right? Like, yeah, it's still a, an ongoing project. And then I think what they do talk about a little bit more bluntly than what I have seen, at least, is, like, not, like, new motherhood because she already has a child, but, like, when she has her second child, it's, like, weirdly making friends with the other moms at playgroup and trying to be, like, well, I'm not one of those moms. I'm one of these moms. And then, like, when you go back to work, what that's like. And um, that's not something that I see very often either. It's a lot about, like, how life milestones change your personal identity and especially how that plays out if those milestones aren't achieved in a traditional or otherwise societally expected way. And I feel like most people, regardless of how they got married or why or how they got pregnant or why or, like, you know, whatever your life event are, I think most people have at least one story of a way in which a major life milestone came about unconventionally for them. And that ultimately influenced their identity and their perception of that life event. Shit, we got deep. We got real fucking deep, guys. Wow. (laughs) So this show is available to viewers in the U.S. via Amazon. Um, I don't know how much it costs if you don't have Amazon Prime, because I do. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Um, although Amazon lied to me, so. It did lie. I know. It's okay. Amazon tried to deny me a second season of Catastrophe. So if you also harbor anger and resentment towards Amazon Prime for trying to cheat me out of season two of Catastrophe, feel free to find us on Twitter using our handle at HateWatchWithUs. And if you love Catastrophe and want to convince Kiersey to to quickly watch the rest of season one and season two, you can send her long emails at (laughs) hatewatchwithus at (laughs) gmail.com. And please send us some emails because all we get are Twitter updates. (laughs) Eventually we'll have fans. Someday. Uh, Although I do want to take a quick second and thank the... um, the people who contributed to our total 84 downloads. Woo! You're the best. You're the best. Um, We appreciate all of you, and some of you are international, and we definitely appreciate you guys because that's super rad. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. So we're not ending the podcast, even though it sounded like an ending. Um, (laughs) So we're just polite. We're moving on to... Our second topic of the evening or day or morning, depending on when you're listening to this, which is 
Oh, is that me? (laughs) It was such a good drum roll. I wasn't sure. So we are going to enter into a discussion about characters that media texts want you to hate and whether or not we actually hate them and under what conditions we do or don't hate them. We were partway inspired to enter this conversation by Catastrophe because I think it's fair to say that every character in Catastrophe is intended to be hated to some degree, although it has become increasingly clear to me that the degrees to which you're intended to hate them depends on the importance of the character to the show. But I think there are certainly plenty of other examples of that, especially recently. Um, This feels like a trend that shows have really gotten on board with. You know, shows like Girls, You're the Worst, Catastrophe are all really prime examples of that, um, of that happening. And so here we are, and that's what we're talking about. And Kelsey, it's your turn. So I think, I think we've already covered off on Catastrophe and a little bit on You're the Worst as well. Well, so one thing, one thing I just want to say quick about Catastrophe, because I didn't say it in the last segment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's interesting to me about positioning the two lead characters as being kind of terrible people, um, and then there being like lots of moments of warmth and sweetness and kindness sort of buried underneath all of that, is that in the landscape of the other characters in that show, which by my read at episode four are all like tertiary. They're not even secondary characters. Yeah. The two lead characters, Rob and Sharon are very much intended to be far better people than any of them, which maybe is only because of the depth to which you get to know them. But I think that sets up a character landscape of relativity where like the leads are better people by relativity than anybody else presented in the text. Yeah, and you see that a little bit um, in You're the Worst as well with the lead female character's best friend who's, like, a human disaster as much as the lead characters are as well. Um, She always just, like, takes it one little teeny step further so you kind of get a little perspective and you're like, well, she's not that bad, I guess. (laughs) I also... Um, which I already teased, but I also thought about girls and... And how bad that show is and how it's a atrocity and I wanted to end. because <laughs> Mostly because of the Vulture podcast, because they keep bringing it up. Yeah, the Vulture Stone's podcast really thrall. loves it. Although you say all of that, and one of our favorite recappers has written prolifically about girls. And overwhelmingly with, like, not a negative view. Anyway. No, you're right, you're right, you're right. I've only seen half of the pilot of Girls, so I am hardly an expert. But the one thing that is that everybody knows about Girls just from living on this earth is that Lena Dunham came into that project intending to create characters that people would dislike. Right. She wasn't trying to create relatable, aspirational characters. I feel like I overused that word in the show. But point still stands. Like... She was not intending Hannah to be the type of character that every woman watching that show looks up to. No, she's making, like, entitled millennial New York hipsters. Right. And there's a lot of shows right now that are playing with that trope in particular, but are playing with lots of different tropes of, you know, quote-unquote bad people. Right, and is that... So I guess when you're watching a show like that, is it because... Are you in it for, like, 
the spectacle of like seeing what terrible thing they do next? Or are you in it to like see if there is underlying good in them or is it a little bit of both? I think it very much depends on the story. So I was trying to think of some long-standing hateable characters that have stuck with me. Um, and I kind of threw it back to some unconventional places, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So, and I ended up interestingly thinking of a lot of like uh, competitive situations between characters within one universe. So I was thinking back to um, the Russell Crowe movie, Almost Famous, which for those of you who don't know, is about a band and a Rolling Stone magazine. Close enough. And it's all happening. It's all happening. And so their lead singer versus the lead guitarist, both of which I think are characters you're intended to hate, but over the course of the story are sort of your, my perception of their hateability, as it were, like sort of changes based on their importance in the story and then their actions over the course of the story arc. Similarly, um, there is a, I think it's 1996 movie, um, so Tom Hanks movie called That Thing You Do, which is also a band movie, a one-hit wonder band movie, um, where the lead singer and lead guitarist are sort of positioned at odds in a similar but more comedic way. And then I was also thinking in sitcom land to Scrubs, the rivalry between Dr. Cox and Dr. Kelso. And then uh, I was sort of thinking about how I met your mother and Ted and Barney in particular as as characters with hateable elements. Yeah. So in each of those examples, there is an individual, there is a character that the text wants you to think of as a better character than the other. And then there's a character who is somewhat of like, Oh, I also have um, Chandler and Joey from Friends on this list. Um, So there's a character that's a little bit of like the dumb one that's hateable just because they don't seem like they have much to offer. And then for me, in all of these examples, there is a character who comes out the other end ultimately being somewhat more likable than the character you're intended to dislike. Right. I think that's fair. So how do you think, do you think those characters... Or I guess, which one would you place someone like Michael Scott into? Or is he another beast altogether? Well, that one's interesting, especially if you think about the history of The Office. Um, And, fuck, what was his name? The British Office guy. Ricky Gervais? Yeah, no, his character, though. Oh, uh, I don't know. Shit, I do actually know this one. I, one of my most extensively researched papers in college was about Mm -hmm. the office. Anyway. um, So what's interesting about Michael Scott is that you're supposed to hate him. And certainly the intent of the British office, whatever his British equivalent was named, um, you are absolutely supposed to hate. There's not supposed to be anything sympathetic about him at all. The American office took a slightly different route, especially in later seasons with Michael Scott, because I think American writers in general really struggle with the idea that you can't have sympathetic feelings towards a character ever. Um, like, I don't think American writers are good at accepting that, like, some people just suck. Yeah. So they certainly made Michael Scott extremely relatable down the road. But I I mean, for what it's worth, like, I do know people who are on both ends of the Michael Scott spectrum where, like, they found him extremely endearing and also found him really painful to watch. 
Yeah, I mean, I think on my most recent rewatch of him was my most sympathetic towards him, and I was still appalled at what he says sometimes, especially, like, in the context of watching it in 2017 versus in 2007. Yeah, there's Um, a lot about The Office that did not age well. No, but I think that they actually do a pretty good job of something that is pretty hard, which is making someone who's unlikable likable in a real way because you kind of understand over time where he's coming from. Like, he's lonely and it's, like, very sad if you think about it too much. Like, he's just so lonely and he wants a family. And, like, by the time he actually meets someone and has a family in the in the series finale, you're like, oh, my God, he has two phones for all his children's pictures. And it's so cute. <laughs> yeah, by then they've built sympathy. So I guess for me the question is, or one of the many questions, is why does a show or a writing team position a character to be hateable? I mean, I think it depends on who else is around them or the premise of the show, right? Like, there's a lot of factors there. But, like, in the case of The Office, like, there's a lot of very likable people. And I think it's for the case of, find, you know, finding humor in someone who's totally obscene in an office environment. Well, and for most of the first several seasons, which is true in the British office as well, the boss character, whether it's Michael Scott or the British guy, is really the only plot. Like, they are the only conflict. And the intent of it, certainly on the British side of it, was never to provide resolution to the plot. It was just comedic discomfort. Right. And so the reactions of the people around him and to what he does is, like, the whole formula of The Office for the first couple of seasons until they build relationships amongst other people. In the case of, like, what about in the case of like, Arrested Development. Like, that's an entire cast of people that are all unlikable. But it's a great show, and it's funny, and I think that you're really watching for the, like, obscenity of it all to be like, you people are, like, they're meant to be ridiculous, basically. But they're all bad people. Yeah, and that's another one where they position their protagonist, at least on the surface. Definitely, if you engage with the text at all, you find this not to be true. But they position, based on relativity, the protagonist to be the relatable one. So Michael is supposed to be the hero of the story. He's supposed to be the one good person, the one sane person who's surrounded by these absurd, ridiculous characters. But the more you engage with the text, the more you realize, like, Michael is fucking up his son's life, and Michael is actually extremely selfish, and Michael is just as bad as the rest of them in basically every single way that the show can explore. Right, and they do often explore that, like, verbally through the narrator, being like, well, he's also being selfish in this moment. Like, in a funnier way, that's what they're saying. (laughs) But I thought that was, like, as I was thinking about this, that was an interesting example, and I was talking to my boyfriend about it tonight, and he was like, well, they're not bad people. And I was like, have you watched this show? (laughs) Like, they're all terrible people, but I think you can read it. I don't even know how you can read it and not think that they're bad people, but I think you can get distracted by what's happening, I guess, and just enjoy, like, watching it so much that you forget that it's actually... Like, if you met any of these people in real life, you would be horrified by them. Well, but that's interesting, right? Because I think it ties into some of what we said about catastrophe. But I think, you know, we had gone through this thought exercise of trying to categorize different 
different characters based on their hateability versus relatability. But I think it's interesting to recognize that there is a reality in which every character is sympathetic if you do the thought exercise, right? And so I think most people in the Arrested Development fandom support each character of the show equally differently, but equally. Yeah. Because there are circumstances surrounding those characters that excuse their behavior or explain it. Um, But it's also established in the show universe that, like, I guess they all get a gold star. Like, motive is established in the Arrested Development show universe in such a way that you understand that even though they're all bad people doing bad things, they all thought they were doing the right thing for the right reasons. That it's almost as if the show universe just has to engage you in the logic of the characters to make them acceptable to you whether or not that would be acceptable in real life yeah i mean i I think that's a lot of what they're doing i mean i don't think i've ever watched it that way and i don't think that you have either but (laughs) i I don't know though like it is not shocking to me that he said that because i have watched it and felt sympathetic towards individuals lucille in particular yeah like even though everything Lucille does is illegal, and even though Lucille is essentially solely responsible for the mess that they're all in, I buy into the idea that the show presents that Lucille thought she was doing what was best for the family all along. That doesn't mean that's what's best in the world, or in life, or in the legal system, but I believe that Lucille however selfish and fucked up she may be, believed that she was doing a right thing. Right. Or, like, it's easy to be more sympathetic towards, like, George Michael or Buster. Like, any of, like, the children characters in, like, developmental age, not actual (laughs) age, um, are a little bit easier to, I think, relate to, but are also still very hate-worthy if you actually look at them. Yeah. In perspective. I wanted you to talk a little bit, you brought it up in the Slack channel, so I wanted you to talk a little bit about How I Met Your Mother, and uh, in particular characters like Ted, because Ted is one of those characters who, for me, is positioned to be, like, kind of dumb and kind of a fuck-up, but overall intended to be endearing and the overall hero and sort of overall lovable and wonderful. Yeah, and I think Ted's an interesting example for a few reasons. Uh, Like you said, he is definitely... I think the writers think he... I think the writers are as enamored with him as the show wants you to be. (laughs) And it, like, is a little concerning as you watch it, and you're like, really? (laughs) I find Ted to be a huge tool. And I think part of that is obviously intended, but I think you're supposed to look at that and be like, oh, it's so cute that he's intellectual. Well, right, he's not a tool in the same way that Hannah from Girls is a tool, where, like, the show writers and runners of How I Met Your Mother positioned Ted to be a tool with a lot of self-deprecating humor of, like, oh, ha-ha, like... He's pulling off those red boots. Yeah, like, pretentious jokes about liberal arts college. Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. Right, and I I think they found themselves in an interesting position as the show went on because 
it was so clear that Marshall and Lily were actually, like, the very likable, endearing characters and had this, like, great relationship on the show. And then they were sort of competing to bring Ted back up to their level and be like, oh, yeah, Ted's great, too. Remember Ted? He's great. And I think, the I don't like the payoffs there for him overall. Like, I don't think you get to the end of season nine and you're like, yeah, that Ted, I could watch another nine seasons of this shit. Dear Lord, no. No. Um, No. And I think, I don't know, I mean, he's a huge mansplainer, so that doesn't help him, but um, I think, like, the pretentiousness of him ends up not being cute after so long because he never learns. And I think that the, like, the growth of a character can help um, in a situation like that. And I think we can almost transition this a little bit if we're talking about your average white male (laughs) and talk about um, two characters on Parks and Rec who have a similar, I don't know. They're perceived very differently, but actually are not that different. Is that a good way to tee that up? <laughs> that was a real smooth transition. <laughs> Ever so casual. So what I do want to talk about is Andy Dwyer and Mark Brandanikowitz. Which, by the way, I the entire time I was watching Catastrophe tonight, I could not stop thinking of Rob as Mark Band- 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 Brandanikowitz. Yes. <laughs> it's because... The white man, like, trope that sometimes gets conveyed and sometimes doesn't, but should be always conveyed, is, like, the button-up with the sleeves rolled up and the other <laughs> shirt underneath, which is the Ted Mosby special. It's the Mark Brandanikwit special. It's the Rob Delaney special. It's, like, pretty much anyone that you want to be, like, the straight white male Jim Halpert special. Like, that's all you need is, like, oh, give them that button-up shirt with the rolled-up sleeves and, like, tell me you don't see that every fucking day of your life. It's like that, plus, like, the semi-halting speech where it's like, I, the white male, want to show that I care about you emotionally, but, oh, God, my masculinity keeps me from accessing my brain. That's Michael Bliss one costume. (laughs) Like, I'm not wrong. <laughs> oh, archetypes. <laughs> oh, archetypes. Um, so Andy Dwyer at the beginning of Parks and Rec is hugely unlikable. He's terrible as a boyfriend. He's obnoxious. He's going nowhere with his life. Like, just like a useless, useless, words are hard, um, sack of shit. And so it was interesting to see when Mark Brandanikwitz dates Anne how he's such a better boyfriend to her, yet people hate him. Like, unreasonably hate him, maybe? Like, I understand that. I'm hate, a little but... bit in that camp, though. Like, I think one thing that I always disliked about him is that he... This is a trope that is used for female characters a lot of the time that doesn't get an equal amount of drama. But he's very much, like, an extremely two-dimensional character that exists solely for um the advancement of a female character totally and well i think we got to the point very quickly where like he wasn't adding much value to the show and it was smart to write him out but it was interesting to see that between those two characters that both roll up their shirts (laughs) that so unlikable one ended up being the one that stuck even though he wasn't meant to stick like he was meant to be a guest star and leave and ended up being written to the show because of his likability to some extent. It's like likability and chemistry. So 
on the on the extreme end of the Parks and Rec hating spectrum, there is someone like John Ralphio mm. who is written to hate because he's horrible and like there's no other perception of him, I don't think, that's acceptable. I think you can find him funny for a little while. But by the end of that series, that was the one character that I was like, just make it stop. Really? Because I especially loved him by the end. Because, like, he, what is lovable about him is that there is no way that there is an archetype of a John Ralphio. Like, who, who in this life can you point to that is a John Ralphio? No one. Like, that is not an archetype that exists among humans. Like, there are ridiculous people who are money grubbers and club goers and, like, are users and abusers the way that Jean Raphael is, but, like, no one exists in this world the way that he does. And, like, he is intended to be hated the same way Mona Lisa is intended to be hated, but they are such caricatures of the things that are horrible about humanity that I found that deeply endearing and, like, so fun, like, tremendously fun. Because it's not real. Like, that's not, it's reflecting some version of terrible humans that is so absurd that you don't have to think about the terrible humans you've known. Right. I mean, I thought, I definitely had that same reaction at first, but I thought that they just kept reusing the same material sort of over and over and over again by the end. Well, but that's like, that's sitcom format, right? It's all about the comfort food. Like, we're going to feed you formulaic shit so that you feel familiar and safe. Well, when our screen time was limited with what we had with Parks and Rec, it wasn't him (laughs) who I wanted to see. Fair enough. So what about characters who are, I guess, meant to be very realistic? Like, I'm thinking more in, like, the drama space, and I think you touched on this with your musical examples. Um, I had two sort of that I'd written down um, that are definitely like in the more serious space, but um, Emily Gilmore was one of those. And I talked about this a little bit recently, so I won't go into too much detail, but I think especially as like the very youngest end of the spectrum, when you watch that show, you are positioned to feel like she's an adversary. And as, first of all, like when you watch it again, at a later date, like, when the revival came out, you definitely change your opinion of her. But I think um, over the course of the show, too, like, they sort of give you other sides of her. And so they use that as to show character growth with the other characters and show that they are also learning other sides of that person that they think they know and think they dislike. So at the beginning of the series, they're so separated from her, like, they haven't seen her in years. And by the end of it, they still have conflict, but it's with a deeper understanding of, like, who each other is, I think. And then the other person I had singled out a little bit is from Friday Night Lights. There's a lot of, like, I guess characters that you could hate on that show, (laughs) depending on what your perspective is going into that. But the person who I really did not like when I watched it was Tyra, who's sort of like a... She's someone who I would have hated in high school. Hmm which is why I hated her when I watched it. And she's, like, really skanky and kind of, like, doesn't think of very highly of herself and isn't very... doesn't try hard at school and thinks she's, like, going for, like, a pretty much dead-end life, right? Like, she doesn't think she has any prospects in terms of, like, having a career um, or anything like that. And it's, you know, it's a lot because of, like, the environment that she's been brought up in. But she's someone who 
they really work hard to show you how she's trying to better herself over time. And they bring in other characters to help her through that process, obviously. But by the time we're in, like, season three, I was, like, crying because she got into college. (laughs) And I was like, wait, that's not how that's supposed to be because I really did not like her. Well, and is that an example of the show universe wanting you to dislike her and then deciding later to build sympathy? Or, like... Was the show universe trying to make the point all along that this was a misunderstood character? I I think it's more like the latter. Like, I think it is, you know, I think there are, there could be a certain audience of that show who did relate to her, Mm -hmm. which is great because she did obviously like achieve a lot throughout the course of the show. But um, it was a storyline that I wasn't expecting, I guess, because I'd seen a lot of similar like teen soapy sort of shows that had taken that character and just made them like, the foil of all these different romantic relationships that we're building was always like that, you know, person on the side. And rather than taking that route, they really kind of like subverted your expectations and ended up giving you this really like unique story um, about coming like sort of out of poverty, I guess, and wanting more for yourself. Because that's really the Andy Dwyer story at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Like taking it back to Parks and Rec. And it, as you alluded to, it's accidental because he wasn't intended to be a full-time character. If he had been, I somehow doubt that they would have made him such a shitbag at the start of the series. But that is the story arc that they ultimately gave him, is like someone who had no prospects in life and was a shitbag because of it, who, given the right nurturing and circumstance, was able to better himself and come out the other end a good human with a good life. So why is it that we haven't talked about april but we've talked about andy like what do you think makes her not top of mind at least she wasn't top of mind for me until we were just talking about it because i don't think you're ever intended to hate april i don't think the show ever i'm sure there are fans out there who hate her and if you are out there i would like to talk to you because you're wrong so wrong i don't think you're ever intended to hate her i think she is created as a character with high walls and strong defenses because the whole point of her narrative arc is that deep down inside she's an extraordinarily vulnerable human who just needs people to love her and take care of her nurture her to break down those walls and show the highly capable strong and like functional wonderful human that she is deep down inside oh oh um, so I, I feel like you should you should mention the quiz we took now. Oh, the quiz we took. So there was a BuzzFeed quiz. Hold on, I real quick have to pull up Slack. Um, <laughs> there's a BuzzFeed <laughs> quiz that was like, what percent Andy Dwyer and what percent April Ludgate are you? And so Kelsey and I both took it, and I was sixty three percent Andy and thirty seven percent April, and Kelsey was sixty one percent April and thirty nine percent Andy. So we're basically each other's equivalents. Aw, it's so beautiful. Uh, And it's also accurate. It's extremely accurate. And at the end of the day, we're both just beautiful cinnamon rolls. (laughs) Um, I feel like, and like, I don't, I don't want to like beat this point too much because I think there's, I think, you know, this is not nearly an exhaustive conversation. I think there's a lot more that could be said, but I think there is... Something that happens in stories, I thought about this a lot with Almost Famous and that thing you do in particular, um, where there's, like, the one person you're really supposed to hate, and then there's, like, one person you're supposed to like but is also kind of a dirtbag. So, like, in Almost Famous, 
Um, what's the name of the lead singer in uh, Stillwater? Oh, God. Ugh, thrown it way back. Anyway, that guy. He has long hair. He spends the whole movie Russell. Talking. No, Russell's the lead guitarist. Oh, As if I'd forget who Russell Hammond is. That's all I have! Dear fucking lord. Who do you I'm think sorry. I am? I'm sorry! Um, at any rate... So the lead singer, the front man of Stillwater, is a dirtbag, and he's, like, super full of himself, and he thinks the band belongs to him, and he says on several occasions that the band would be nothing without him. And then you have Russell, who's the lead guitarist, and he's, like, a little bit quieter and more humble, and you find out over the course of the movie that, like, he's had this on-again, off-again thing with Penny Lane, who's a groupie, and the bottom line is... That he pulls some shady shit, he uses a lot of people, and he's a dirtbag. And even by the end of the movie, he has been given a redemption opportunity, so he still kind of comes out the other end being somewhat the hero. And you're supposed to think of him as the relatable one from Stillwater, while the front man is just sitting in the background being a dirtbag. And for me, like, I have a long-standing history with this film, so, like... Just take that with a grain of salt. But Russell is not the hero of the story by any means. And just because he does, like, two redemptive acts does not redeem his character for all of the other dirtbag shit he's ever done. So for me, I don't full-on hate him, but I definitely don't like him as much as Russell Crowe wanted me to like him. On the flip side of that, the front man of the band, I don't hate as much as Russell Crowe might have wanted me to hate him. I mean, he's definitely, like, a comedic device in terms of his hateability. But, like, he is a plain and simple tool. Like, that's all there is to him, is he's, like, right. a plain old tool. And for me, there are a lot of characters like that. You know, Dr. Kelso from Scrubs is one of those characters, where, like, the only thing they have to offer to the broader narrative is being a tool, like, being a big old dick who's just there to be a dirtbag. And, like, I don't hate that in a narrative necessarily. Like, because so much of narrative structure is about familiarity and about what you can grab onto, in, in when used well, those are characters that I can grab onto and feel comfortable with. Because you're like, oh, yeah, you're the crotchety old man. You're always going to be a dick when you're in the scene. Ha, 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 ha. Right. So why do you think there was sort of, like, a resurgence of particularly in like the comedy genre um of how we sort of started this conversation like really like people that you could really hate who were appallingly bad people like why do you think that became a trend of sorts i imagine that there is a lot of writing on the topic from media writers and critics far smarter than we are um, that I just haven't read. In my gut, what I'm feeling is that culturally there is something reactive to, you know, for some reason I've really given a bad rap to Kate Hudson movies. Give me another rom-com actress. Katherine Heigl. There we go. Or like any of the other Will Smith Julia movies. Roberts. Give me a male actor. I got Will Smith Matthew for rom-coms. Matthew McConaughey. Let's focus on him for a little while. Like, I think there's somewhat of a reaction to those kinds of stories that are cloyingly sweet and rely on the same... I feel like, you know, drink once every time I use this word, but, like, rely on the aspirational aspects of those stories and those tropes and those archetypes. 
I'm also thinking about like The Bachelor because I feel like The Bachelor is the ultimate example of what happens when you take like material aspiration and romantic aspiration in the sense of like being rich and Mm -hmm. being beautiful and being in love and you put it all together and then turn that into some form of reality. Like I almost feel like there was so much of that, like a, a blood clot of that in culture some group of people with enough writing power to create products looked at that and said, like, for as much of this fairy tale, beautiful, flawless humans as there are, there are also a lot of very real, very fucked up humans. And what would it be like if we created a subculture of that? Yeah. And I think back, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little less, like there was so much content in the form of traditional rom-coms. Um, it was often that, like, this mid-tier rom-com would come out, you know, like, every three months there'd be a new mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. And there, that was a big, you know, like, piece of the film market. And that sort of just, like, disappeared, mm-hmm. often because they weren't making enough money. But I think there was a little bit of, like, a thirst in the world for a story kind of like that to still exist. And we really didn't have anything new for a while. And I think that's why I was so excited when shows like this, like... Catastrophe, for example, or You're the Worst, started coming out in particular because there was that appetite for it, but it was like, it felt like the modern take on it. Like, it was a little more jaded and a little bit saltier and a little rougher around the edges, but it still had, you know, pieces of what you were watching those very traditional rom-coms for. Yeah, and I think in that vein, there was there's an interesting thing that's been happening just with societal shifts over time. You know, we we alluded to this when we were making fun of Europe, but culture continues to become more crude and more brash and more sexualized over time. And, you know, I think people have been playing with that, especially given that there is such a broad landscape of premium cable where, like, the FCC rules don't apply. And I feel like that has had a lot of power over narrative and over character structure um, in ways that, you know, 10 years ago, which was still even less prude than 20 years ago versus 30 years ago, you know, go back as far as you want. Um, (laughs) It has had a huge effect on narrative structure and the types of stories that people are willing to tell and wanting to tell, frankly. Sort of along those lines, I want to throw in a quick plug for... um, one character archetype, but two character examples. Um, Joey Tribbiani and Barney, whose last name I can't remember from how I met your Stinson. Barney Stenson. There we go. Um, so these are sort of like the last hateable character example that matters to me in this moment. Um, and that's characters who in like the broader landscape of the characters of that show Landscape is another word that you can drink for anytime I say it on the show. Mm-hmm. I use it way too fucking much. Um, <laughs> Buzzwords. It's the hate watch with us drinking game. Um, anyway, Joey and Barney are similar archetypes. Like, they're white men who have some kind of power center for Barney. He's rich for Joey. He is an actor who eventually becomes rich. Um, they're both womanizers. They're both considered dumber than all the other characters on the show. And by and large, in my watch of it, and I recognize that I might be wrong, especially with regards to how I met your mother, I almost totally refuse to admit I'm wrong about friends, though. Those two characters turn out to be like 
two of the better characters of the show. And I don't mean in terms of entertainment. I mean in terms of, like, human worth and human value. Like, Joey, by far, is the most sane human on that show and by far the most loyal and loving and caring friend. Like, if I had to pick out of those six friends, Joey would be my friend. End of story. Um, yeah, and I think and the I same think, for Barney. Like, he yeah. has a huge capacity for caring and loving. And he's, he's hesitant to, like, showcase it. But by the end of the series, you have seen plenty of examples of that. And I have one more person to throw into that little party you're making here. Mm-hmm. Roger Sterling. Oh, talk to me more about that. I'm excited about that. Well, I just thought of it because I was like, we haven't fucking brought up Don Draper yet. I can't I believe like, we didn't bring up anyone from Mad Men. Okay. Right. But I think Roger, Roger's also like Barney in 1966 or whatever it is. <laughs> but like he fits almost all of those same character points to a T. And he's often used like in comparison to Don in terms of like how crazy he is, I yeah. guess. And then I think there are, if I'm remembering right, because I've not done a second rewatch of all of mm-hmm. Mad Men, um, like he does end up at the end of the day coming off as a fairly like good person underneath all of his like shenanigans. I think he's a little bit of like the fucked up dude with the heart of gold. I don't think he has yeah. as big of a heart of gold. Like if we could weigh the gold of their hearts, I don't think <laughs> his would weigh quite as much as Barney no. and Joey. But I think you're right. Like I think he is portrayed as being off the fucking wall and out of control but peel back the defense mechanisms and he's actually a good human. Right. Do you do you want to go down a Don rabbit hole or are you... Yeah, let's do that real quick. Dear God. <laughs> we, it's worth noting that, like, we should probably dedicate a couple of episodes to Mad Men because I think there's a lot in the Mad Men universe. And I don't, you know, we've been recording for a very long time, so I don't think we <laughs> can get into all of the different ways in which characters on Mad Men are hateable. But, like, let's go down the Don Draper rabbit hole. I mean, he's set up to hate from the get-go in a lot of ways, but uh, he's one of those... I mean, I think we're going down the anti-hero rabbit hole right now, which <laughs> is, so like, real. another two hours of, like, conversation because we can throw in, like, The Sopranos and Walter White and all that fun stuff. But I think, like, you're meant to hate him and think that he'll get better the entire course of the series, and... He does a lot of things that are appalling in a very not funny way. Uh, in like, he's doing a lot of the same things that we're seeing on other shows now in like a comedic way. But it's um, you see how he's often like a terrible father and a terrible wife, uh, or a terrible partner to his second wife. <laughs> Did you just? <laughs> Don Draper is a terrible wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is that as well. He's a terrible wife. He He is. (laughs) He would be an awful wife. (laughs) Oh, God. This is called an hour and 32 minutes into our podcast. Um, No, but I I think one thing that is really interesting about John Draper that we have touched on in other texts that have been brought up over the course of this freewheeling conversation is that I don't think the show I I know for sure that Matt Weiner Weiner intended <laughs> <laughs> from the beginning for John Draper to be who he is and to make the point about John Draper that he ultimately makes at the end of the show. 
But the show isn't forthright with you in stating that from season one. And so there's a long period of time. And like the first, well, the only watch of Mad Men I've done was really painful for me. And I was uh, lucky enough to be reading Matt Zollerseit's book, Mad Men Carousel, as I was watching it, which is the only way I made it through. But the first couple seasons positioned Don to be like the Rock Hudson movie star husband, like he is this hotshot in his ad firm. He's beautiful. He's sexy. He has this beautiful wife, this perfect 1950s home. Like, he has everything and is everything. But ultimately, Matt Weiner Weiner wants to make the point that he's kind of the worst person on the face of the planet. Right. And it's sometimes difficult to hate someone who's so good at what they do, even at their worst. When I feel like that's what, like, the Badlands episodes of... Um, of Mad Men are about um, when they feature Don Draper. I mean, there's certainly plenty of Badlands episodes that don't feature him, meaning episodes that are sort of slow and plotting. Yeah. But certainly the ones that do feature him that don't seem to have much other purpose are really about watching that struggle of, like, this character who you've built up to believe is, you know, someone you can root for who's actually kind of a shitty, sweaty, nasty, dirty guy. Oh, yeah. And when there are endearing moments with him. They're very jarring. So, like, the suitcase episode always is one that, like, trips me up because it's very sweet. And his relationship with Peggy is, like, one of the very innocent, sweet relationships that he has with anyone. And that's one of those moments where you're, where you sort of, like, step back and you're like, wait, all this time I've been kind of here for him and he's been horrible. (laughs) And in comparison, like, he's actually very out of character in this moment, I guess. It almost sounds to me like one of the common threads, and there are many, but one of them from our A segment all the way through our B segment has remained vulnerability. And like, I don't, not to get like too touchy-feely here or anything, but like we have several examples here and that episode, The Suitcase in particular, is a shining fucking example of this. Of... Characters in situations where defenses have been built up, whether those defenses are the character, the plot, or your personal defense against the narrative, and then there is some compelling thing, which is either a character arc, a plot device, or, like, your own fucking broken emotions as a human being on this earth, that break (laughs) through... What are you trying to say? That's as much a commentary on me as it is you. (laughs) (laughs) That ultimately breaks that down. And like, like, I think the reason why the moments on Catastrophe feel so sweet is because it is juxtaposed to how bitter they are with each other all the time and how snarky they are. And the reason why the suitcase episode is, is as touching as it is, is because of everything you know about Peggy and Dawn and their relationship at that point. And I don't know, like, I think there's a lot of different ways to stack up the likability or not of characters and like whether or not a show presents a truly likable character. But I feel like for me, ultimately, what it comes down to whether or not I find them to be human and like to as I said earlier to make that connection with the text is to expose yourself and become vulnerable to that moment in the text 
Wow. I can't top that. <laughs> Y'all had to wait an hour and 40 minutes to get that shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a fucking splinter. You had to pry it out of me. Yeah, that was... No, I agree with you. Um, you, you win the the wine Emmy bottle for that one. <laughs> I had so much water in my mouth. This happens to you all the time. I know that should be another rule of the hate watch drinking game. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) When we have a website, we'll post the rules to it. God. Anyway. Dear Lord. Okay. Well. If you have feelings about vulnerability or if you feel <laughs> vulnerable after listening to this <laughs> offensively long podcast, you can share your feelings with us at Hate Watch with us on Twitter. Uh, and if you feel like you'd like to enter something for <laughs> for some art armchair psychology, feel free to send us your longer character arc. Via our email, which is hatewatchwithus at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Sorry we're, we took so much time out of your day. <laughs> we hope that we were able to connect with you on a human level.